The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to Nobody Told Me. I'm Jan Black. And I'm Laura Owens. Our guest on this episode is Chris Voss, and we've wanted to have him on the show for a long time now. Chris is a former international hostage negotiator for the FBI, whose career brought him face-to-face with bank robbers and terrorists. He became the FBI's lead international kidnapping negotiator. He's taught negotiation at leading universities, and he's now sharing with us the negotiation skills that helped him save lives. Chris says life is a series of negotiations you should be prepared for. And he explains all about that in his book, Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as if Your Life Depended on It. Chris is the founder and CEO of the Black Swan Group, which trains businesses, individuals, law enforcement and government personnel in negotiations. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. This should be fun. Yeah, we're looking forward to it. How did you develop your negotiating skills? It's not something you're born with, is it? Well, yeah, we're all born with the ability. I mean, uh, there's so much more these days that teaches us that it's more nurture than anything else that brings out talent. I wanted to become a hostage negotiator with the FBI, and uh, I had, I was, at the time, I was eminently unqualified. So, the woman that was in charge, I said, how do I get qualified? She said, go volunteer on a suicide hotline. And that is really where it all started, just learning how to really listen to people. Let's start from the beginning. Say there's someone that you want to negotiate with, but you think you're going to get a negative response from them. How should you initiate this interaction and how can you get them to go into a conversation in a not so abrasive manner? Well, it's really counterintuitive, but it's a traditional advice we got a long time ago from, it's not sexy, but Stephen Covey, seek first to understand and be understood. And I like to think of Covey not as a nice guy, but as a mercenary, wanting to get his own way. If I hear you out first, there's about a 75% chance that you're just going to agree to everything that I have to say. You're, you, you're prepared for an argument. But if you actually get a chance to have your say, people become incredibly persuadable at that point in time. That's what office negotiations are built completely around. Wow. So how do you practice the skill of of listening if if you're in a situation where your emotions are really on the edge and you want to jump in and and get your point across? How do you take that three-second pause and let the other person say their piece? Well, it's uh, by actually being curious. Like, ask yourself, like, I'm really interested in finding out, you can say it to yourself, where this person came up with this crazy idea. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, if you're a little playful about it, if you're just genuinely curious, you know, if you have enough confidence in your own position, you shouldn't be afraid to hear the other side out. They may actually have an idea that you can use or a perspective or piece of information that will change your mind. You can't know everything. 
And there's a pretty good chance that the other side's going to have a bit of knowledge, a black swan, as we like to say. It's going to, you know, it's going to change your mind. So let it happen. And, and you get a lot more stuff that way. Why is that's right the best possible response that you can get from someone? Because that's right is what someone says when they think they've been totally understood and when they think that what they've just heard is the complete and indisputable truth. And it takes you out of argument approach and it gets you really into collaboration approach. And it just, you know, it's, it's the other side letting you know they feel empathy from you, which is a really powerful connection to make. And it's when people are going to feel most like agreeing with you is after they felt empathy from you. So how do you trigger those words? Well, the challenge is if you don't like where they're coming from. You know, it's real easy to get a that's right out of somebody you agree with. Now, it's it's not that much more hard, but it's more awkward because you know where they're coming from. You just don't happen to like it. But if you can express somebody else's point of view, how they see it, especially the bad stuff about you, what it does, in their eyes, you suddenly look fearless. You look accountable. You look respectful. You look appreciative. You know, these things start to layer on top of themselves in the other person's mind. And then as all that comes together, it creates this great sort of explosion of understanding in their head towards you. And again, it moves them in your direction in ways that you really can't get otherwise. So being empathetic would not be seen as a side of weakness then by saying that's right and kind of seeming like you're on their side. You know, that's what most people are scared of. This fear that they build up in them in their heads that I'm going to appear weak or I don't have the courage of my convictions, you know. But the fascinating thing about this is, um, you know, Daniel Goleman pretty much coined the term emotional intelligence. And in one of his most recent books called Focus, he talks about three types of empathy, and the type of empathy we're talking about right now, Goleman would call cognitive empathy. And interestingly enough, the people that he says are best at it are sociopaths. Wow. Now, a sociopath is not, is not weak. A so, sociopathic opponents may be the strongest, most dangerous opponents that we face. They're not afraid of empathy. This fear of appearing weak doesn't get in their way. They happen to like cognitive empathy because they're lazy, and not only is it really effective, and, and it works, but it works fast. And so, no, it's a real long answer is you don't appear weak in any way, shape or form. And you actually it requires a tremendous amount of strength in order to display empathy because you have to have complete confidence in yourself in order to be able to do it. How do you size up the person that you're negotiating with? You know, you you look at it as kind of a hypothesis and and then you're willing to be corrected. You sort of you you start taking educated guesses. we, you know, we had a phrase in law enforcement, we call them swags, which is a scientific wild ass guess. Or, you know, <laughs> Sounds very official. And it's very official. We had we took a lot of swags when I was with the FBI, <laughs> as opposed to a wag, which is a wild ass guess. <laughs> but you, you start swagging a little bit. I mean, 
you can get a pretty good read uh, off somebody just based on their body language or based on the look on somebody's face. You've got a pretty good idea what's going on in their head right now. You can say something like, like, look, you know, looks like you're really thinking really hard about this. You know, that's making verbal guesses as to where they come from, how they feel about something. They will instantly begin to interact with you and either tell you that you're on track or correct you. And the crazy thing is you really want people correcting you because that's actually when people are at their most honest is when they're correcting you. I feel like I'm often really indecisive and I can come off shy, especially in situations where I'm nervous, like in a negotiation with somebody. What advice would you have for somebody like me to come off like a stronger personality? Well, you know, you know, um, we think there's great strength and deference. Like I had as hostage negotiators, we had to develop ridiculously strong negotiation skills that came off really gently, really softly. We didn't we couldn't seem to be aggressive, but we had to actually be very assertive without seeming to be aggressive. So this the key to negotiations is not coming off strong. The key to negotiations is coming off as flexible. Um, and that's really what you want in negotiations is flexibility. Uh, there's another saying that we like to live by. Um, never be so sure of what you want that you wouldn't take something better. I love well, that's that. Flexi- that's flexibility. That's finding out from the other side. Maybe they got something that could help you. You don't want to be so strong in your position that you can't change. So if you're flexible and flexibility is actually one of the actual keys to power. There's a difference between strength and power. And flexibility is a key to power. What are the words you should begin with in a negotiation? And what are the words you should try and avoid at all costs during a negotiation? Well, a lot of it is really context driven. So, um, like, uh, let's talk about the context of I'm sorry. Okay. We use I'm sorry all the time when we're trying to be assertive, just before we're getting ready to be assertive. If I say I'm sorry, I'm getting ready to very assertively tell you that I want something. I I had a negotiation yesterday. My girlfriend accidentally bought the wrong kind of cat food, and we lost the receipt. She's worried about going back into the pet store and getting into a big hassle over trying to return something with no receipt. You know, how do they not know that we're not crazies that are poisoning cat food? You know, who knows? All sorts of crazy stuff can go through your head. Sure. I'm like, I got this. This is easy. I, I walk in the door with the bag in my hand. A tenant sees me walk in with product right away. And she looks at me and I go, I am so sorry. Now, what I'm trying to do is get her attention because I just stepped in the door and she's mystified. She's like, what in the world is this guy apologizing for? Plus, now that I start with an apology, she kind of feels powerful and in control. So I've got her complete attention. She's starting to drop her guard. And I said, I'm I'm here to confess to being the stupid customer of the week. Now she's really curious. <laughs> so are we. Yeah, really. You have us on what's the edge he, of our seats. What's he going to say next? <laughs> exactly. That's, that's, that's how you get somebody's attention. You make them in a very unguarded fashion wonder what you're going to say next. And then I said, and tone of voice is really, really, really important, too. I go, I bought the wrong cat food. And she goes, all right, do you have a receipt? And I go, no. And she goes, all right, go get another bag. 
<laughs> wow. We spent more time at the traffic lights on the way to the store than I spent making that exchange. Just that easy. Wow. And how are the techniques that you would have used with terrorists different than the ones that you would have used with the lady at the pet store? Well, the philosophy is, the, is exactly the same. Like, I want the terrorists to be so startled but not angry as to what I just said, as to not be able to wait till they until I they hear what the next thing I'm going to say. Like I, in my company's career early on, we um, we had the contract. We trained the hostage negotiation team for the United Arab Emirates, an Arab Muslim country, and they're very pro Western. And their biggest concern at the time was they were going to have a terrorist uh, event, either as a result of Al Qaeda or as a result of uh, Iran, Iranian terrorists, because Iran's right next door, they got real problems with Iran. They got nothing but trouble with Iran. And I'm sitting with the sheikh that's in charge of counterterrorism. Before I sit down with this guy, I'm told in advance by the contractor, my intermediary, he says, make no mistake, the sheikh doesn't want hostage negotiators to save terrorist lives. The sheikh wants hostage negotiators to help him apprehend and shoot, if necessary, any terrorists that come on his country. He does not want a terrorist to come to his country to live. Mm-hmm. He, he, wants, he wants you, his SWAT teams, to take them out. So he's not, here, he's not here to be nice to the terrorists. Right. So we sit down. He's a very pro-Western guy. He'd actually been educated in the United States. Real smart young guy. He, says, what do you, he literally says to me, he says, what are you going to tell my negotiators to say to terrorists? And I looked him at him. Looked him in the eye and I said, I'm going to teach him to say, what you're doing is a great thing. And the sheikh's mouth fell open. And he goes, and I said, now I got you. You can't wait to hear what I'm going to say next. You're shocked. And you couldn't be more focused on wondering what I'm going to say. And that's what I'm going to teach your guys to do. And when I have you like that, I got you. So then what would you say next after that? Well, we're going to, we're, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say, how do you want this to come out? Because now the second thing that I've just said is what Daniel Kahneman would refer to in his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, triggering slow thinking, which is in-depth thinking, which is exhausting. One of the secrets to negotiations is how do you exhaust the other side? Huh. The terrorist is going to be so How do I want this to come out? My God, I didn't expect him to say that. I don't know what to say. <laughs> what kind of a trick is this? What, what's he trying to do to me? What's he trying to get me to think about? Holy cow, I hadn't, I hadn't thought about all the possibilities here. What if I could get them to do everything I want them to do? What would that be? There's going to be so much flood through this guy's mind that he will do about two or three hours worth of thinking work in about 60 seconds. And I will already have started him down the path of being so worn out that in a very short period of time, he's going to be very suggestible as to either he's already made his point and they can go ahead and give up and come out. Or we really are going to give him a jet to fly to the airport and I need them all to stand to the window so we know how much they weigh so we can fit everybody in the van. Wow. Which is obviously you so. know going wow. in, have you always known going in how something is going to end up? I mean, I obviously you know how you want it to end up, but do you have a pretty good gut instinct in terms of how it is going to end up? 
Well, gun instinct is just recognition of indicators. And hostage negotiators over the years, and even in business negotiations, we've done enough with human nature that we've got a lot of really good indicators from the very beginning of what the other side is seeing. So our first question is, and you know, the, to use a dirty word from way back when, what's the profile of the situation? What are all the indicators and what do they tend to add up to? Are they, does it indicate that they want to come to an agreement or does it indicate that they have an ulterior motive? Both of those are pretty clear early on, whether it's a, with a terrorist or whether it's a business negotiation. There are a lot of business negotiations where the other side's completely wasting your time. They just, they want information from you. They're going to use the terms of your deal to drive down the terms on the people that they really want to do business with. They're just gathering information. Most business negotiations, actually 75% of them are probably fishing expeditions. So, so all you got to do is realistically read the signs from the, the beginning. You know, get out of hope. Hope is not a strategy. Take a look at what's really there and then make your mind as to what your next move is going to be based on what's being presented to you in a moment. How do you know for sure that the person is starting to soften and come over to your side, whether it's in business or in the FBI? Uh, it's going to be their use of pronouns early on is a real big indicator. Are they trying to diminish their own influence? And, you know, are they using he, she, me, my, we, they, them, us, plural or singular? And then as it goes on, is, does that change? If you've got somebody that's using nothing but plural pronouns on you in the very beginning, you're talking to a very important person, they're trying to intentionally make themselves look weak. We've had kidnappers say, you know, there's a whole gang here. I'm not in charge. These other guys are very important. The person that's saying that in a kidnapping is either the boss or, or he's the most important person on the other side. The CEOs do the same thing. Mm-hmm. If through the course, because the CEO doesn't want to get backed into a corner at a table. So he's going to say, I got a board of directors. I got all these people I'm accountable to. You know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm really just a spokesman. Now, if we get a switch through the course of the conversation and it, it feels more personal because they've changed how, they, how they're using pronouns, they're calling us by our first name more. It's really not important that you use their first name. It's how much they use yours. That's a change in the dynamic that indicates much more of a closer working relationship. Wow. What's the toughest negotiation you've ever had to do? I've worked kidnappings where we knew from the very beginning it was the kidnapper's intent to not allow the victim to live. Those are hard because you have to work with families. And the trains coming at them. And you can't lie to them about the fact that it's coming at them because you still got to try to get that train off the tracks, but you're probably not going to. And, 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 and they know it. I mean, they know when a situation looks bad. They're more testing to see whether or not you're going to be honest with them about it. And I've had that happen. I've, ha- I've had them say, if we do this, is it going to make a difference? And my answer has been, we may, we may not be able to change this. Immediately came back to me and said, that, that's what we thought. We just, we want to see if you're going to tell us the truth. So th- those were hard. 
Um, those are probably the hardest ones. And then ultimately, in each one of those cases, since kidnappers are in business, we made those instances make the kidnappers look bad, and we ultimately put them out of business. We just didn't put them out in that instance. And those were hard cases. You say that your counterpart is also your partner. What do you mean by that? Well, we've got a philosophy that the uh, the adversary is a situation, which means you're negotiating with someone because to some degree, you're both faced with different aspects of the same problem. And they're negotiating at you or with you because they need to, you to take some sort of action that they feel will benefit them in the long run. So getting a real feel for what that is, and that's especially important in business deals because people like fighting it out with each other over the same business deal. But the bottom line is, to some degree, you're both faced with the same problem. So if you're the guy who wins, how do you get the other side to respect you? Um, first of all, there's a difference between whether or not you won and whether or not you made the other side feel like they lost. Uh-huh. Now, I want to win. I just don't want you to feel it was at your expense. And I'm going to change that early on because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look real hard to get your opinion, to get your point of view, to get your ideas. If I can tease some ideas out of you and we use your ideas as part of the solution, you're going to love the solution. You're not going to care that much about where it goes. You're just going to care that you contribute. And the more involved you are in how we get to where we're going, the less concerned you are going to be about where we ended up. You mentioned that you first started honing your skills as a negotiator by volunteering at a suicide hotline. And I'm thinking that there might be people in our audience who would be faced with a situation where a friend or a loved one might be threatening suicide. What advice would you have for them? You know, um, talk about them with it candidly. Don't, and, and that might sound like it's implying that you'd be dishonest. But here's, here's the problem. Most people who are suicidal, their friends talk to them and they say, don't feel that way. You shouldn't think like that. You've got so much to live for. You know, drop all the encouragement and say, ow, it must really be tough for you. You know, that's an option. Have you, if, you, if you're going to kill yourself, have you thought about how you're going to, are you going to kill yourself? The most important thing is to flat out ask people. You do not, that's a, the, the most important thing, the best thing you can do in suicide intervention is just flat out ask. You can't plant the idea in their head. They'll actually be incredibly relieved that you actually asked because everybody else doesn't want to talk about it and then have a candid conversation with them. A, a real interesting thing. For example, people are thinking about jumping off bridges. They, in their head, they imagine that when they jump off the bridge, they will fly, which is why it's interesting. The number of people that jump off, say the golden gate bridge or some other bridge who survived the fall Almost all of them report that as soon as they jump off, they say, oh, my God, oh, no, I, how do I get back? And as a, my early days of crisis intervention, I was thinking, like, what did you think was going to happen when you jumped off? Mm-hmm. You, you, there is such a thing as gravity. You're going to fall. But in their mind, 
until I heard somebody who actually thought about jumping off a bridge. And she wrote and, and she said, I thought it was going to fly. They imagine they're going to fly. So how are you going to kill yourself? I'm thinking about jumping off a bridge. All right. So, you know, you're going to hit the concrete or you're going to hit the water so hard. It's going to be like concrete when, when it happens. I mean, you could jump. That's a that's a solution. But here's what's really going to happen. You're going to hit the water at 200 miles an hour. It's going to be like hitting concrete. Your family's going to have to live with that. And then don't say another word. Having a very candid discussion about this takes it out of the dim recesses of their brain and gives them a chance to actually talk about what it is and enables their ability to cope with it, as opposed to avoiding it, judging it. You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't feel that way. All this well-intentioned stuff in crisis intervention is really counterproductive. So should you have the person explain their story or are they just so used to telling it by that point that you just need to focus on a solution? Well, that's a crazy thing. They don't get a chance to tell their story to anybody because the minute they start hitting that around about it, people say, oh, you know, don't feel that way. You got so much to live for. You're healthy. Nobody actually listens to them. Right. So actually listening to someone is so rare and it's so refreshing for them. That's why suicide hotlines have such a ridiculously high success rate. Because you call into a suicide hotline, you, you don't get somebody that says, oh, I don't feel that way. You know, you got so much to live for. You're healthy. You got your health. You never know what, you know, all that nonsense. Somebody in a suicide hotline says, wow, it sounds like you're really hurting inside. Are, are you going to kill yourself? How are you going to do it? Do you realize what's going to happen when you do that? Yeah, that's an option. But they talk with them and they actually hear them out. That's all. That, that's the main thing that they teach people how to do on suicide hotlines is to, is to actually hear people out. And you know how effective that is? I was blown away by this when I volunteered on the hotline. When we started on our training, they said, if you're on the phone longer than 20 minutes with anybody, you're doing it wrong. And I remember thinking to myself, wait a minute, 20 minutes? I, I can't get a pizza in 20 minutes. You want me to save somebody's life in 20 minutes? He said, no, if, you, if you're actually listening to someone and actually hearing them out, you'll be done in less than 20 minutes. You'll have them in a good enough place where they'll be okay and then get through the night and get through the rest of the day. Whatever crisis they're in, you can get them out of it in 20 minutes. That's how rare actual listening is. How important are open-ended questions in any kind of a negotiation? You know, about a third of the time, open-ended questions, if you understand how to actually construct an open-ended question, are probably the absolute best thing that you could say. A lot of people think closed-ended questions or statements are open-ended questions. Like a lot of people say, tell me more about that. And they think it's an open-ended question. That's actually a statement and it's a command. Great open-ended questions are, and my company refer to them as calibrated questions. Start with the words, how or what? And that's the best way to ask somebody a question. How do you want to proceed? What's going on? What's the best course of action? How and what are really the critical, two most powerful, open-ended slash calibrated questions you can ask? I saw you give a talk where you said that you should never ask anyone if they have a few minutes to talk. Why is, there, why is there such a difference 
between that and saying is now a good time to talk? Uh, no, you say is now a bad time to talk. Is now a right, bad so time to talk? Okay. <laughs> All right, good to yeah, know. All right, thank you. Listen. Changing my notes. <laughs> all right, so um, you have a few minutes to talk. It's actually basically about five questions all in one because, first of all, somebody says you have a few minutes to talk. They, they, think, they think to themselves, all right, first of all, if I have a few minutes to talk, do I want to talk to you? They got to answer that question. Next, if I have a few minutes to talk and I want to talk to you, do I want to talk about what you want to talk about? Second question. How long is a few minutes? Third question. How do I get off the phone? Fourth question. You have a few minutes to talk triggers all of those questions in somebody's head, which if that stream of questions just been triggered in their head, it's a distraction. They're thinking about what are the answers to all these questions while you may be talking. The other problem with you have a few minutes to talk is it's a yes-seeking question. And a long time ago, somebody came up with this ridiculous idea that the more times you get somebody to say yes, the more you can tie them down and make them commit to the big yes at the end. And that nonsense, maybe at one point in time it was a good idea, but salespeople selling bad products have so bludgeoned us with, would you like to have more free time? Would you like to make more money? Would you like to travel all over the world and live in luxury condos for free? All this yes fishing has got us to the point that as soon as somebody starts fishing for yes with us, we've got a negative reaction from the snake oil salesman and we start to put our guard up and we instantly lose trust in people that try to get us to say yes. Chris, our show is called Nobody Told Me and we ask all of our guests, what's your nobody told me lesson? So what is your nobody told me lesson about uh, the art of negotiating? Well, you know, nobody told me that letting the other side go first And hearing them out would not only help me make more agreements, but the indirect route would get me agreements faster. Like it is this crazy time hack that I can get you to agreeing to my deal or my course of action a lot faster if I let you go first. And I think since we both have got stuff to say, I've just doubled the amount of time by letting you go first that it's going to take to make the deal. When in fact, I may not have to say much at all because so much of your case might be what I wanted anyway. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's great. And Chris, can you tell people a little bit more about the Black Swan Group before we end the show? Yeah, and and I'd love to tell them about how to subscribe to our free newsletter as well. Oh, please Please tell them. them. Yeah. But uh, Black Swan Group, we, you know, we teach the magic of hostage negotiation for use in business and personal life. I mean, this is, this is we call it tactical empathy. This is emotional intelligence. This is weaponized, military-grade empathy. <laughs> I mean, it's about making great deals with people and having long-term relationships and really prospering. 
And if hostage negotiators can do it under the most extreme circumstances, it could work for everybody with a lot less pressure. Yeah. And it's actually kind of fun. So the, you know, we, we got a newsletter comes out once a week on Tuesday mornings. It's called the edge and it's free. It's a good price. Right, we're it's even half price. It's half <laughs> free is my favorite price. Yeah, free. You know, I got a. I had a friend of mine that worked in. A, sounds like a federal employee. He worked with me in the FBI. I used to like to say, if it's free, I'll take three. <laughs> but the but you know the best way to sign up for the edge and it is a gateway to all of our training. It's a gateway to our website, training announcements, other free stuff that we have. All the back issues are there. You can browse the website. Quickest way is this text-to-sign-up function we have set up. Send the word FBI Empathy. Make it all one word. Your spell check is going to want to change it to two words, but don't let your spell check put a space in there. FBI Empathy, text that to the number 22828, and that's 22828. You'll get a message back asking you for your email address. It'll sign you up for the newsletter. It's a short, sweet thing. Most of the people that have bought the book like the newsletter as a great supplement while they're studying the book and getting better at negotiations. And what is your website? BlackSwanLTD.com, B-L-A-C-K-S-W-A-N-L-T-D.com. And the book, of course, is never split the difference. And the best place to buy that is on Amazon. I buy it on Amazon. Well, great. It's a great book. It's it, it, We could talk so much longer, and we promised to get you off uh, at, at this point, but we really appreciate you coming on with us. Our guest has been Chris Voss. Again, he's the CEO of the Black Swan Group and author of Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as if Your Life Depended on It. I'm Jan Black. And I'm Laura Owens. You're listening to Nobody Told Me. Thank you so much for joining us. 